Go ahead and open your Bible to Ezra chapter 2. It's page 363 if you've got a pew Bible. And don't stand because we're not gonna I'm not gonna take the time to read it, and you'll see why when you get there. You've never read Ezra 2. We are going to sort of look at the whole chapter tonight, all sixty something verses, seventy verses. But we're not going to take time to read all of them. If you're looking at it, you can see that it is largely a, a list of names. Probably a chapter that if we read through, we skip through it rather quickly. Um, but we are going to look at it tonight. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take just a minute or two and, and read it. Take, we're going to read it on our own because it would be, it would be one of Dante's layers of hell, I'm sure, for me to try to read all of these names out loud just over and over. Uh, so take the time and just kind of glance through it a little bit. To get an idea of what's going on in the chapter. And then we'll move on and talk about what lessons we can learn from it. Now, how many have actually read that chapter before? You read through the Bible in a year, maybe, and you read through it and you read it. Um, if you're like me, when you get to a chapter like this, you do tend to skim. Uh, I, sent a, I just finished in Second Chronicles uh, today in my daily Bible reading. And when I started in First Chronicles, I texted my dad and said, Is it a sin to just skim through the first five or six chapters of First Chronicles? Because all it is is just a list of names. So, so we get so-and-so... And it's easy to kind of skim over those things and almost to consider them kind of like a, I guess you'd call it a throwaway chapter, right? We, we read it, we move on, we don't spend a lot of time reading it. I mean, it's, in this case, it's filled with towns we've, some of them never heard of, with names of people that we don't know and we never hear from again. And so it can seem like there's nothing important in this chapter. And as I've Going through a book of the Bible, I always do try to find something in every chapter that we can look at. And so as I was studying this chapter, reading these names and all that happens here again and again, 
I did find three important lessons that we can learn from it. Now, keep in mind the context. King Cyrus has had his heart stirred by God. And he has told the people that anyone who wants to go back to Jerusalem can go back and rebuild the house of God because that's what God wants him to do. So what we have here are really a list of people who are turning and going back. This is a significant event in their life because they have been in Babylon for at least 70 years. They have families, they have homes, they have jobs, they have friends, and they're giving all of that up to go back to the land of their ancestors, the the land that some of them, the older ones, would have come from, and they're going to try to rebuild society. They're going to try to rebuild the wall, rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jewish life as it was meant to be lived. And so as it gives us this list of people and some a little bit of things that happened, we do learn three lessons about doing the work of God. Now the first is, it just takes people to do the work of God. As I said, it's been about 70 years. God has stirred up the spirit of, the kings, of King Cyrus to allow the Jews to go back, reoccupy the city, reestablish the, wor- the worship of God, and rebuild the temple. Ezra 2 gives us a list of people who volunteered to go back And do this work. Now you look in verse 64. And you see it's a lot of people. Right? The whole assembly together was 42,360. That's a lot of people. Which is a good thing. It was going to take a lot of people. To do all that needed to be done. Because they were going to go back to a city. That had been left in ruins. Roughly for about 70 years. They were going to reoccupy the ruins, rebuild the houses, reestablish the worship of God, and set things in order as they were meant to be done. Uh, And it's going to take all of these people. Now, the lesson that I pulled from this is that it takes people to do the work of God. Anytime we want to do something for the Lord, we want God's work to go on in our town, in our church, through our community, it's going to take people. Now, that's a pretty basic lesson, a pretty obvious idea, but it is something that we tend to forget. Simply because nobody really focuses on the people. The one that mostly get the focus are the ones that lead. The ones whose names are up front. And in Nehemiah, the books of Nehemiah and Ezra are a good picture of this. Right? Ezra is one of the guys, one of the main guys in the book. Nehemiah is the main guy in the book of Nehemiah. And then there's a lesser known leader among the people that go back named Zerubbabel. Now, by and large, those are the only three people, the only three names we know consistently from these two books. And yet, these two books cover an enormous amount of time and and they accomplish a great deal. They do go back and reoccupy the city. They do rebuild the temple. They do reestablish the worship of God. They do reestablish the life for an an Israelite as it was meant to be lived. They do rebuild the walls. And yet, primarily, we know three people that are the focus of it. We know Ezra, we know Nehemiah, and we know Zerubbabel. And yet, what we see in this chapter alone is that it takes a lot more people than those three To do all the stuff that needs to be done to accomplish the work of God. We see this in modern life too. It's not just in the Bible, but I was thinking today of an example in our modern life is Saddleback Church where Rick Warren pastors. Now Rick Warren is the purpose-driven life guy and he's very well known and he's done all kinds of things and is fairly famous. But his church was started in 1980 and the attendance at the first service was 40 people. 
Now, in the last 38 years, uh, they have baptized over 50,000 people, and they average over 22,000 people a week in service. Now, while Rick Warren is the principal person we know, how many nameless, faceless people have labored in that church for the last 38 years to make it possible? How many people have served there and gone and done and taught kids and kept the nurseries and built buildings and taught classes and helped people find their way? Thousands, thousands and thousands of people have worked there. There's no way Rick Warren could not have done it. Think about Billy Graham. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Crusades. He's the guy that we talk about. He's the guy that we see. But there are hundreds of people involved in every single crusade. There are hundreds of people that go in weeks in advance to prepare the way. There are people that get churches to gather together and the people that work there and hundreds from the local community that work. So Billy Graham is the guy we know about from the Billy Graham crusade. But if it was just Billy Graham, we wouldn't know who Billy Graham was. We know who he is because of the hundreds and thousands of people that it took to do every single thing he did. And it's that way in our day. Anytime the work of God is done, it is always done because there are people active in the work. It's never just one person. It is always a group of people Banding together for a common cause, for that purpose, to advance the work. Now, we're a, we're a small church in a small town. And if we're not careful, what we will do is we will look at, at our small church. We will look at our small town and we'll conclude that we really can't accomplish much because we don't have very many people. Which, that's a true story. But there are problems with that mindset, right? At least three. One is it is a poverty mindset. The poverty mindset looks at what we don't have instead of what we do have. Now, do we have as many people as Zerubbabel had here? No. There are as many people in Texas County as there are in this book, in this particular chapter. Do we have as many people as Saddleback Church has? Well, no, not, not even close. But that's the wrong way to look at it. We shouldn't focus on what we don't have, and in this case, the people that we don't have. Rather, we should look at what we do have, the people that we have. I mean, we would like to have more people to do the work of God in Gaiman, but, but every church in existence would like to have more people to do the work of God that they're doing. As I mentioned, Saddleback Church averages 22,000. I can promise you, if one of us were to move to that community, go to that church and say, I want to serve God in this church and in this community, they would find a place for you. Because even a church of that size could use more people to do all the things that they want to do. But rather than embracing a poverty mindset by focusing on what we don't have, what we have to do is look at the people we do have and the things that we can do together. But a poverty mindset is always a wrong mindset. And what it leads to is a defeatist mindset. 
Right? The defeatist mindset flows from a poverty mindset. And the defeatist mindset looks at all that we don't have and it concludes that we can't do anything until we get more. More money, more people, more something. And I call it a defeatist mindset because it does conclude we can't do anything. I mean, we we can't do everything, the defeatist mindset says, so really we can't do anything. Now, realistically, can we do as much as a church the size of Saddleback Church can do? Not even close. I mean, not even close. But does the fact that we can't do as much as a mega church does mean that we can't do anything at all? No. Not even close. I'm reminded of the quote by Edward Everett Hale that's often mistakenly attributed to Helen Keller. You've probably heard it. I am only one, but I'm still one. And I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. Can we do everything? No. No, we can't. But does that mean we shouldn't do something? That we can't do something? No, of course. Of course that's not. Instead of looking at what we can't do and what we don't have, we have to change our mindset and look at what we do have and what we can do and then do the, what, the, the thing that we can do. So it's a poverty mindset, it's a defeatist mindset, but it's also the wrong mindset. I believe it's the wrong mindset because Scripture teaches, I believe Scripture teaches That we have what we need to do what Jesus wants us to do. Right now, can we do everything? No. But can we do something? Sure. Do we have what we need in order to do the something that Jesus wants us to do? Yes, I believe we do. Paul says to the church at Corinth, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. That you were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice some words. Enriched in everything. Come short in no gift. Right Now enriched in everything is not referring to money or buildings. Right. Instead, it's referring to spiritual gifts. We know because you're enriched in everything and he specifically mentions utterance and knowledge. And then he comes on down and says that they come short in no gift. And the point that Paul is making is that they have everything they need to take the light of Jesus into the spiritual darkness that is Corinth. But Corinth was a dark, evil place. The church of Jesus Christ there was greatly outnumbered, outmanned. And yet what Paul tells them is, you have what you need for right now to be able to do everything that Jesus wants you to do. You can take the light of the gospel into your dark culture and you can see souls saved and lives changed 
Not at some point in the future you can do this. Not when you get a big building. Not when you get more money. Not when 30 more people are added to your church. But right now. Right now you're enriched in everything. Right now you have everyone that can speak in utterance and knowledge. Right now. In this moment you come short. In no gift. To do everything. That Jesus wants you to do. For most churches. The problem is not that there aren't enough people that are gifted by Jesus to do the work of God. For most churches, the problem is getting those who are gifted by Jesus to use those gifts to do the work of God. In most churches, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Does every church need more people? Absolutely. Because there's lost people all around us. And as long as there's lost people in our town, churches need more people. But does our church need more people to do what Jesus wants us to do right now? No, it does not. What Jesus wants for us right now in this moment, our church has that. We come short in no gift that is necessary For us to do what Jesus would have us to do. No. We don't have every gift in existence. And we don't have. And we are not able to do everything that could possibly be done in Gaiman. But we do have every gift that is necessary. To do everything that Jesus wants us to do in this moment right now. What we need are for those people who are gifted. To step up and do the thing that Jesus has gifted them to do. It always takes people to do the work of God. The work of God never happens as we sit back and watch. The work of God happens as we get up and as we get involved. It takes people. Not only does it take people, but it takes the right people. To do the work of God. Now look at verses 59 through 63. Verse 59. It says. And these were the ones who came up from Tel Maliah. Tel Harsha. Cherub Adon. And Emmer. But they could not. Identify their father's house. Or their genealogy. Where they were of Israel. Okay, and then if you look at 60 and 61, it says that these guys were claiming to be the sons of the priests, and they were called by their name, but they sought the listing in verse 62 among those who were registered by genealogy of priests, but they were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till the priest could consult with the Urim and Thummim. Now, in these verses, what we see is, is interesting, I think. We see people who don't want to go, who want to go up with them. They come and they say, everybody that's a Jew that wants to go back to Judah, gather around Zerubbabel. And so they're taking names. You're you and you're from here and you're from there. And then this group comes up. We're Jews. And so they start looking. And what they come to is, you're not Jews. From what we can find, we don't find anything that identifies your ancestry is actually being Jewish. And so what happens is, either of these people in verses 59 
Verse 59, they either they don't get to go back or they don't go back as Jewish citizens. And then there's another group that comes forward. And from what we can tell, it does look like they could identify themselves as Jews, but they were claiming to be priests. And as they searched through the records, they couldn't find any record of the fact that they were actually priests. So they got to go back as Jewish citizens, but they did not get to go back and serve as priests. Now, I find this to be a very interesting thing, both of those. And I learned a couple of lessons from it. One is that the work of God is done by the people of God. That first group of people that came, they wanted to be included, but they couldn't find proof that they were. They were actually Jewish. And as unpopular as this kind of opinion may be in our day, God does make a distinction between those who believe in Jesus and have been saved by Jesus and those who have not. I mean, that is an important distinction in Scripture, and it should be within the church. Um, And one way it's seen is in who gets to be a part of doing the work of God and who doesn't. Someone who has not professed faith in Jesus shouldn't be tasked with doing the work of God through the church. Like, for example, let me ask questions. If a group of unbelieving musicians volunteered their services for Sundays and Wednesdays, should we take them up on the offer? They have all their instruments, they have everything. They'll just show up and play and leave. They're not going to charge. They're just going to play really well. Whatever we want them to play. Should we take them up on that? If an unbeliever with great organizational skills volunteers to head up the vacation Bible school for next year, should we take them up on that? Again, they're going to volunteer. They're going to teach it. Whatever we pick, they're not going to try to bring into it. They're going to get, we buy it. We show it to them. They'll organize and plan and do all of it. All we've got to do is take this unbeliever up on the offer to organize our VBS. Should we do it? If an unbelieving teacher volunteers to teach a Sunday school class, should we do it? I mean, again, they're going to teach our books and what we give them. And they're already maybe a teacher in the public school, so they know how to teach. They're going to teach what we give them. Should we take them up on that offer? If an unbeliever volunteers to work in the nursery, should we take them up on that offer? Again, it's going to be a volunteer. They're just going to show up. They're going to care for the kids. They're going to do all of that. Should we take them up on it? Now, me... I say no to all of that. And this isn't a commentary on their skill. This isn't a commentary on their ability. This isn't a commentary on whether or not they're a good human being or not. It's a commentary on how we understand the church. Now if the church is just a civic organization that meets a couple of times a week, then we can let anyone be a part of it. But if this is a church of Jesus Christ, that is meant to be filled with people that have been redeemed by Christ. And if we exist to glorify Christ and help people come to know Christ, then no. No, we should not allow unbelievers to just come in and be able to serve and do these sort of things. You would think a conquered people who were going back to reestablish would be willing to take anyone 
just come back and live with us. And yet as they did the search and saw that they couldn't prove they were Jews, they didn't do it. They knew that they needed to be a Jewish person to come back and do the work. So the work of God is done by the people of God. But also, right people, right place. Those that weren't allowed to serve as priests weren't being told they weren't Jewish. They were just being told that they didn't meet the qualifications for a priest. There were very strict guidelines on who could be a priest. And these people did not meet those qualifications. So they weren't allowed to serve as priests. Now, that doesn't mean they couldn't go back. It doesn't mean they couldn't do something else. What it did mean was they could not be priests. It wasn't a commentary on their skill. It wasn't a commentary on their love for the Lord. It wasn't a commentary on them as human beings. It was a commentary on their qualifications to serve in the particular way of being a priest. And when we get to our day, what we find is people are gifted by Jesus to serve in particular ways. And by and large, people should serve in the ways that Jesus has gifted them. Paul said, having gifts differing according to grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy. Or ministry, let us use it. Or he who teaches, in teaching. He who exhorts, in exhortation. He who gives, with generosity. He who leads, with diligence. He who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. And we're not going to get into all of this. We don't have time. The point is, notice what he says. If you're gifted to preach, do it. Do that. If you're gifted to lead, lead. If you're gifted to be merciful, do it. But what you're gifted in is what you should do. We're all gifted in some way. That's a part of being a born again child of God. We are given a gift by the Holy Spirit. And so what we're supposed to do is find and use our gift for the work of God. The gift that God has given us. We are to find that gift and use that gift to advance the work of God. This is important, particularly, I think, in a small church. Probably, I would almost say, more important in a small church than a large church. Because smaller churches are more prone to giving in to what I would call the warm body syndrome. And the warm body syndrome is this. If we can just find a warm body to fill the spot... They'll do it. That's, it doesn't matter. I was talking to a pastor friend about warm body syndrome today. And he says he had conversations that went like this. And this was the name he gave me. Sarah. Let's ask Sarah to teach second grade Sunday school. He replied, I've been here for five years. Sarah hasn't been to church once. The response was, well, yeah, but maybe if she started teaching a class, then she would start coming. Now, when we do stuff like this, what we're communicating is what we're doing isn't really very important. And any warm body will do. That's what we're saying. Right? Because we wouldn't do it in anything else, would we? I mean, we wouldn't just grab a warm body and do it in something that mattered. 
We would only do it in stuff we did not think was ultimately very important. Now, one caveat I'd put with this is that there are times where we will have to serve outside of our gifts or ability. Right? But, the way this differs from a warm body syndrome is that it's not just saying, oh, well, I'll be a warm body, I guess I'll go do it. Instead, it's saying, I want to serve Jesus. And there's a need. And right now, nobody else will meet that need, so I'll do what I can until we can find somebody who's gifted to do it. I'm not a warm body, I'll do my best, I'll give my all. I'm going to do what I can here. I'll I'll use my dad as an example of this. My dad's a a good Bible teacher. But working with kids was never really his thing. He often joked, hurtfully I might add, that he never really, barely liked his own kids. Much less other people's kids. Despite this, at Fort Gibson, he served as the junior high Sunday school teacher for several years. Now, he wasn't a warm body to fill a spot. He gave his all to that class. He taught it and he studied for it just like he does for his senior adult class now. But he wanted to serve Jesus. And those kids needed somebody that would teach them the Bible. And so for years he taught until somebody else stepped up and said, I want to teach junior high kids. I think this is where my leading and my gifting is. We all at times have to step out of our gifting and our comfort. But that's not necessarily, that's not the same as the warm body syndrome. Now, right people, right place, it also means that we may have to tell somebody no about doing something. Right? If someone wants to serve in a particular way but doesn't meet the biblical qualifications, it's okay for us as a church To say, no. No, you can't do that. If someone isn't gifted in a particular area, it is okay for us to say, no. No, you can't do that. If someone doesn't do well in a particular area, it's okay to say, no. You can't do that. And, And... I mean, just we, we would know this, I think, in a lot of ways. Before church night, someone walked in and just said, Hey, I'm a, I'm a preacher and I think God's given me a message for your church tonight. Here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm not just going to say, Oh, okay, here, let me sit down. Go ahead. Right? I'm not. I don't know anything about them. I am not going to let somebody I don't know just jump up and have free reign. Right? And you would all, hopefully, you would all agree that that would be the right thing to do. So with that, we can see that there are times where when somebody says, I want to do it, that we can say, no, and it's okay. But if if someone loved working in the nursery, but every time they worked in the nursery, the kids ran up and down the halls, knocking stuff off the wall, screaming and running into the door, it would be okay for us to say, no, no, you can't work in the nursery anymore. If someone signs up to teach a Sunday school lesson, And they don't ever study. And they've got, whether it's kids or adults, and all they do is end up flipping quarters and playing games. It's okay for us to say, no. No, you can't do that. Someone just shows up to church and gets saved. And then says, hey, I'm saved and I want to teach now. It's okay for us to say, no. Not yet. Not right now. 
It is okay to say no in these sort of ways. But what we do is we don't just say no. What we do is we say, let's put you over here. Let's try this. Right? We say no to this, but maybe let's try that, knowing that different isn't lesser. Right? Look at what Paul says. We have many members in one body, but not all members have the same function. 1 Corinthians 12, it's where Paul talks about if the foot could say it's not part of the body because it's not a hand, it, it doesn't mean anything. It's still a part of the body. We're all created differently. We're all wired differently and we're all gifted differently. None is better or worse than the other. So while we don't all have the same function, we all have a function. And our function, whatever it may be, is just as important and just as necessary as any other function. Right? What I'm doing is not the only important thing that we do to help the work of God in our church. But Scott leading the scene is an important function. But even that, because it's up front, these two aren't the most important. Sunday school teachers, people who keep the nursery, people who clean the church, people who mow, people who do all kinds of things. Everything that's done, everything that's done to help our church be able to function on a Sunday and a Wednesday and, and do what we do to minister to families when a loved one dies or, or whatever else. All of that is important. And all of those functions are just as important as every other function. So when we say, no, you can't do this. Let's try this. We do it knowing this isn't, we're moving you from to this to a lesser same. No, this isn't what you're gifted. Let's try here. And, and if this is where you're meant to fit, if this is your function, then this is better than anything else you could do anyway. So we want to put people where they fit. We want to put them where God wants them to be. It not only takes people to do the work of God, it takes the right people in the right place to do the work of God. And then finally, it takes people, it takes the right people, and it takes money. Look at verse 68. So some of the heads of the father's houses, and they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in a place. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work. 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, 100 priestly garments. So the priests, the Levites, and some of the people, and the singers and the gatekeepers, and the Nethium dwelt in their cities, and all Israel in their cities. So they gave. And they gave according to their ability. I like that. And they gave it to the work. To the treasury for the building of the house of God. Right? They were giving to the work of God. Now from what I can tell, their giving was quite generous. One of my commentaries suggested the total amount given would be over a million dollars in today's currency. That's a lot. But this is good. Because what they were going to do was going to be expensive. Again, keep in mind the city had largely been left in ruins for these 70 years. What happens to ruins that are left to ruin in time? They ruin worse. Everything they were going to have to do was going to cost money. It would cost money to rebuild houses for them to live in. It would cost money to rebuild the temple. 
It would cost money to rebuild the altar. It would cost money to rebuild the wall. It would cost money to get food, to get all the materials they need. It was going to cost money, a lot of money. The lesson from this is that it always takes money to do the work of God. It just does. To me, this is one of the reasons I like Scripture so much and I trust it. Scripture and what Scripture teaches is very real. Right? The idea that they gave to support the work and it took money to do what needed to be done, that is a real world issue. Because ministry takes money. In the real world, it takes money to do the work of God. Again, going back to Stephen and Lori, who were here Sunday. What does it take to put a missionary on the field? It takes a, a willing person. It takes a trained person. Well, we have both of those. They are willing to go to Uruguay. They are trained to speak the language. They are able to fit in with the culture. But one more thing it takes. It takes money. It takes money to get them on the field. And once they get to Uruguay, guess what? It keeps costing money. Right? Because when they get there, they have to live. They have to provide for their family. They have to try to get stuff for the church. They have to try to find a building. They have to try to do all of that. And all of that stuff costs money. So how are they going to get the money? Well, the spiritual answer is, well, God will provide. Which is true. But how does God provide? I mean, let's just get real practical. How does God provide? Do they pray and money rains down from the sky in a pile? Or do people give and that money goes toward the mission? It's people who give. People like these heads of the Father's houses who offer freely for the work according to their ability. That's what it takes to put a missionary on the field. That's what it takes to do the work of God. It always takes money to do the work of God. Now that doesn't sound spiritual, but it is. It's spiritual because in the end everything is spiritual. Often what we do is we divide our lives into a compartment. We have a Jesus compartment, a family compartment, a work compartment, a money compartment, a a fun or a hobby compartment, and other compartments. And, And rarely do these compartments cross over one and to the other. But that's really not the way it's meant to be. Our, our life isn't meant to be divided into the secular and the sacred. Or the spiritual or the, the fleshly. Instead, our life is just meant to be our life. And it's all one big compartment. And Jesus is Lord over all of it. Jesus is Lord over my family. Jesus is Lord over my work. Jesus is Lord over my hobbies and my fun. Jesus is Lord over my money. Jesus is meant to be an active and integral part of every aspect of our lives. Jesus is meant to be the driving force in what we do in every aspect of our life. And that affects all of our life, but we're focused on money for this particular point, so we'll just stay there. 
And what happens is when, when our life is one big box that Jesus rules, we see it all differently. Specifically, in this case, we see money differently. So how do we see money when Jesus is Lord over our life? Well, money is a tool. That's how we see it. Jesus sees money and possessions that he gives us as tools that we're to use to advance his kingdom and help people come to know him. Paul says, command those who are rich in this present age. (laughs) You may not be able to read that. It's 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in a living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hope on eternal life. Now there's a lot there we don't have time to go for, so let me just hit some high points. Those who are rich, by the standards of the world as a whole, if you make 30 thousand dollars a year or more you are in the top three four percentile of the world as far as wealth goes by the standards of scripture that same amount would be considered rich now in america we don't think of it that way we think bill gates is rich we're poor but by the standards of what scripture would describe as rich and what the world as a whole would describe as rich we would be considered rich. So this would apply to us. Also notice that all that we have, we're not to trust in, I don't even have time to get into the fact we're not supposed to trust in money. But God gives us what we have for two reasons. And let me just quickly say, who gives us? Right. So what we have, it is a gift from God. And gives us for our pleasure, right, that we would enjoy. So there's a good thing. Right? The fact that we may be in the top 3 or 4 percentile of the world as far as wealth, that's not a reason to feel bad. But in our choice, we were born, the time we were born, we were given the gifts we were given. shouldn't feel guilty because we have wealth. That's not the point. Scripture doesn't say wealth is a reason to feel guilty. We shouldn't. God has blessed us for us to enjoy. So enjoy it. However, Not just for us to enjoy, but to do good and be rich in good works. Now, keep in mind, money is the focus of the whole passage, right? It's money before and it's money after. So what do you think the good works, be rich in good works, would be? It would be in regards to money. Giving. Using our money. And as we give, as we're good and rich in good works with what God has given us, what happens? We store up a good for ourselves a good foundation for the time to come that we lay hold on eternal life. So what has God given us all that we have for? To enjoy. So we can have life and life more abundant to be sure. And so that we can use it to advance His kingdom and have treasures in the world to come. That we can use it to help other people come to know Jesus Christ. That we could do what we can. Money is a 
tool. Money is also Hold on. It's not in the right order. Money is a test also. Jesus not only sees money as a tool that's to be used for his glory to advance his kingdom, he also gives us money as a test of our faithfulness. And look at what he said. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. He who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Again, we don't have everything to get into it. Quickly though, this is in the story of the unjust financial steward. So money is the focus of all he's talking about. It's important to pick up though that he considers money, earthly money, that which is least. And what he can give us is that which is greater. And what he says is, if we're not faithful in that which is least, we can't be trusted with that which is more. And what I think of it with this in the army, when somebody came through to do an inspection, if we had cleaned up our barracks, the sergeant major was coming to do an inspection, do you know what he never did? He never walked in and looked at the middle of the floor. You know why? Because every slouch could clean up the middle of the floor. Our sergeant major, when he came in, he came in with a white glove, and he walked over to the wall walkers, and he pushed them away from the wall, and then he rubbed his hand back there. He reached underneath the refrigerator. He went to the corners and stuck his finger in there. And those are really the only places he looked. The reason, if you got the corner, and if you got behind your wall walker and underneath the refrigerator, you probably got the middle of the floor too. And that's the picture here. If we want what's greatest, we need to be faithful with what's least, right? And if we can't be faithful with what's least, well, he's not going to trust us with what's greater. So do we want Jesus to trust us with true riches, whatever that may be, which I think true riches uh, would be eternal rewards as well as tangible earthly blessings. So do we want Jesus to give us these true riches? If we do... The key to that is being faithful with that which is least. If we want the greater, we have to be faithful with that which is least. Money is a test. Will you be faithful in that which is least? And if you will, then I can trust you with that which is greater. And then, money is a trademark. Probably more than anything else, the way we spend our money and the way we view our money Show us what's really important to us in life. A familiar passage. No servant can serve two masters. Hate the one, love the other. Or else he'll be loyal to the one, despise the other. And just in case we weren't sure what he was talking about, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon was like a god of money. So mammon would be money there. And the New Testament repeatedly says we are servants of Christ. Jesus says we cannot be a servant of His and a servant of money because you can't have that sort of divided loyalty. We have the the unique ability to choose who or what we're going to serve, who or what we're going to live for. 
and the way we use our money, the way we view our money, it reveals who we trust. It reveals who we're devoted to. It reveals who we love most. It is a trademark. Just as clearly as a Nike swoosh tells us what company that is. How we view our money. How we use our money. Clearly marks us as whose servants we are. So if we want to do the work of God in Gaiman, it takes people. It takes people serving where Jesus wants them to serve. And it takes, it takes money. Now I'm going to go out on a limb and say that if you're out on a cold, dark Wednesday night, you're probably at least mostly in on all of this. Committed to being a part of this. So if we are, at the very least, mostly in, seeking to be a part of it, what do we do with what we've heard? First, we ought to examine ourselves. It's always a good place to start. We always want to start with ourselves. Not think, who should have been here to hear this? But what does God want me to hear from this? So we ask ourselves things like, am I really all in? I mean, what kind of mindset do I have about the work we're doing in Gaiman? Do I have a poverty mindset where all I can see is what we don't have, who's not here, what's not being done, what we can't accomplish? Do I have a defeatist mindset? We can't ever do this. We can't ever accomplish that. We'll never reach more people. Am I serving where Jesus wants me to serve? I mean, do I know for sure what my spiritual gifts are? And am I using them to the best of my abilities? The way that Jesus wants me to use them. And then what does my money, or my view of, my view and use of money say about my devotion to Jesus? And my devotion to the work of God. As we examine ourselves. Then we also pray. Jesus said, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up laborers. Who would go out. Our church has a lot more people than what we see here tonight. That are a part of it. And the reality is, by and large, most aren't actively involved. They're not all in. They're not engaged in the work. And as much as we would like more people to come in and be involved, we desperately need those who are already in to step up and do what God has equipped them to do. So we pray. God, stir the hearts of your people in our church. Stir the hearts of your people in our church that we would go and do your work in our community. I pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up laborers. All right, let's stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer.